Heavenly Father, thank you for the word we've heard already, the word we're about to read. And Father, for all of us, I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts will be acceptable in your sight because, O oh God, you are our strength. And in Christ Jesus, you are our Redeemer. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, just by way of going back to what I did last Sunday, just to quickly remind you, Paul has been discussing the resurrection under five, up till now, five heads. And you can see them listed behind me there, evangelistically, historically, logically, theologically, personally. He's discussed the reformation or the resurrection under each of those. Today, he's going to discuss the resurrection from a scientific point of view. Scientifically, I guess we could say. But I'll get into that in a moment. I want us to have that thought in mind, though, as we look at the text for the day. And we'll start now with verse 35 from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, But someone will say, How are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? Foolish one, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you're not sowing the future body, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There's one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars, for one star differs from another star in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. God help us to see the difference in this message today. But Paul goes on to say, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that would be Christ, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man, that would be Adam, was from the earth and made of dust. The second man is from heaven, that would be Christ. Like the man made of dust, so are those who are made of dust. Like the heavenly man, so are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the man made of dust, we will also bear the image of the heavenly man. God help us to bear the image of the heavenly man. Now, as I said a few moments ago, Paul has already defended the resurrection by several lines of evidence and reason. And as his crowning argument, he And this was last Sunday. He put forward his own life as proof that the resurrection is real. How so? If you were here last Sunday, I hope you remember, but just in case you weren't, back in verse 8, if you'll remember, of, of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul identified himself as an eyewitness. He had seen the risen Lord. He was an eyewitness of the resurrection. But actually, that's a a rather easy claim to make. The fact is, almost anyone can claim to be an eyewitness to almost anything, uh, any event that might have happened in his lifetime. I suppose, as a former Texan, I could claim to have been an eyewitness uh, to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Uh, You know, and you'd be hard-pressed to prove that I wasn't. 
We've all seen enough film of that and and read about it enough that we could pretty much reconstruct the events as though we were eyewitnesses and you'd have trouble proving that a former Texan wasn't in Dallas on the day. I wasn't there for the record, just for the record. I wasn't there. I'm not an eyewitness. But in verses 30 through 32, the point I'm trying to make is this. It's easy to say you're an eyewitness, but what difference does it make in your life? Paul puts forward his transformed life as proof of the resurrection. You see that? Beforehand, he had hated Jesus of Nazareth, and he sought to imprison and kill all those who believed in him. But after he had seen the Lord, he became a passionate proclaimer of Christ. And when I say passionate, I mean to the point of sustained self-sacrifice. Again, it's easy to go to church a few times in life, and it's easy if you enjoy such things to sing the hymns as loudly as anybody else. That's an easy thing to do and a great thing to do, but it's not enough. Paul says, my life of sustained self-sacrifice, the transformation of my life is proof that I saw the risen Lord. In the face of hardships and death, Paul refused to stop preaching the gospel. You'd think that Such an about face then by such a a distinguished Jew, a member of the Sanhedrin, a a, a rabbi, second only to Gamaliel, this amazing leader of the Jewish world, this transformation should have been proof enough that Jesus really did rise from the dead. You would think so anyway, but if you did think that, you would be thinking wrong. No matter how much evidence and reason Paul produced to defend the resurrection, there were still skeptics. There were skeptics in Corinth, There were skeptics in Jerusalem. There were skeptics all around the world. By the way, there are still skeptics to this day. Despite the the resurrection being the best attested ancient fact or historical fact in, in all the world, nevertheless, there are skeptics of the resurrection. And interestingly enough, just like today, back in Paul's day, the skeptics thought that they could use science to eliminate all possibility that a man could rise from the dead. You see... You see their skepticism in today's text, verse 35. Now, here's the paraphrase of it. So, tell me again how the dead are raised. Explain, please, how disintegrated bodies can reconstitute themselves. And so, in answer, Paul gives these skeptics the science behind the resurrection. To some degree, that's what the message is about today, the science behind the resurrection. It's really and truly what I said about it before, that it is about a Christian worldview that incorporates the Creator God into all of our considerations of what's happening in the world. Nevertheless, we're going to talk a lot about the science behind the resurrection. Now, at first glance, you might not notice that Paul is discussing the resurrection scientifically because he doesn't use modern, science-y-sounding terminology, uh, language. Nevertheless... I submit that in this passage, Paul is speaking scientifically as he defends and explains how the resurrection works. So I want you to take a look now at this chart that we're going to put on the screen behind me. And uh, we're not going to take much time with it, and I hope you can read it. But there are seven principles of the scientific method uh, established on this chart. It starts at the top center with observations, or you need to observe and describe what you see. That's the beginning of the scientific method. I'm not going to expound on these principles, but I mention them in order to make an important point. And here's the point. All science begins with careful observation. And, and, and this is just as crucial, 
clear description of whatever has been observed. That's the beginning of all science. But this leads to a problem. That is to say, where there is no observation, there can be no science. No observation, no science. The basic problem then with both the origin of human life, shall we say the origin of the universe, the origin of, the, of planet Earth and the moon and the stars and all of these things, the basic problem with the origins of human life and the end of this world is this. At either end of history, there are no human observers. Thus anything that anyone might say about origins and endings, apart from the Bible, is guesswork. I don't say that to slam anybody, but I say it because it's truth, and a Christian has got to incorporate this into his mind and heart. Anything that anybody says about origins and endings apart from the Bible, that's pure guesswork. That's why the Bible, then, is so different from all other books. It declares a God who is outside time who sits above time, who can view all of time from beginning to end, just like a a pilot in an airplane can view a great deal of territory far beyond what he could on earth. God is above time. He can view all of time from beginning to end. But he's not only one who sits above time. He is the God who can step into time. I'm talking about, of course, in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We call it the incarnation. The incarnation followed by Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection. He stepped into time. And he is also the God who has declared all that ever will happen in time. That is to say, when it comes to authoritative statements about beginnings and endings, the Bible alone is a trustworthy witness Everything else is inference from insufficient data at best. It's usually worse than that because we don't have any clue as to how insufficient our data is. When uh, Charles Darwin began uh, inferring from what he thought he saw, he had no idea about DNA. He knew nothing about RNA. He knew nothing about amino acids and riboflavin or any of those things. He knew nothing. So everything else is inference from insufficient data, and we have no idea how insufficient our data is. Let me just take you back to Isaiah 46, 9 then, where God, speaking directly through the prophet, says, Remember what happened long ago, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning, and from long ago what is not yet done, saying, my plan will take place, and I will do all my holy will. Now, if you have a Christian worldview, you embrace that. You rejoice in that thought. The Christian worldview embraces the idea that from the beginning of time, God knew about the ending of time because he had determined how it would end, and he was in charge of everything in between. Now, I said to you that Paul is a scientist, whether he is using science sounding language, terminology, or not. So let's talk about Paul as a scientist for just a moment. In speaking of plants and seeds and different kinds of flesh, as well as different kinds of glory among the stars, I'm going to suggest to you that Paul is as scientific as Isaac Newton or anybody else who observes and describes what's going on for the purpose of understanding it. So, Let me exhort you now. 
Be careful not to let a false sense of superiority seep into your thinking just because Paul used a simple vocabulary. Modern man tends to reject Paul's statements about the resurrection because, they say, he would not have known about such things as DNA or proteins and amino acids and things as I've mentioned earlier. But then let's be sure about one thing. Newton knew nothing about the makeup of the planets and stars whose motions he explained so well. His genius was not telling us about the minerals to be found in, say, the crust of Mars, but rather his genius was found in telling us about the motions and explaining how gravity is connected to mass and all those things. That's where Newton's genius lay. Yet, And because of that, even though he didn't explain everything, he is still considered one of the greatest scientists who ever lived. So I say to you, that no scientist should ever be required to explain everything. It is enough if he describes and explains one thing in a useful and understandable way. So, to be clear, as Paul explains the resurrection in very simple terms, and I love the fact that he speaks of the resurrection in simple terms, using analogies that anyone can understand. Why? Because the gospel is for all the world. And thank God you can take 1 Corinthians 15 right into the, the deepest jungle in the, in the Amazon River Valley or right into the furthest desert in uh, Mongolia or wherever that furthest desert may be, the Sahara, wherever you go, you can preach 1 Corinthians 15 because all the language is understandable to all human beings who ever live. Thank God that Paul keeps it simple, shall we say. But nevertheless, he is speaking scientifically. He is telling us what we will see when the resurrection takes place. Just a side note. This is a kind of a by the way. While we're on the subject of Newton... Let me lay one rumor to rest. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton may have mapped the motion of the stars, but he did not write Stairway to Heaven. You you just need to know that. Yeah, um, that was Robert Plant with Led Zeppelin. You can see him there, and you can see that they are close enough in appearance to be identical twins. A lot of people have confused the two throughout, but, uh, but, but no, that's not true. Okay, enough of that. Now let's listen to Paul explain the resurrection scientifically. And he starts with what I'm calling the principle of the seed in verses 36 and 37. The seed is designed to give itself up to die. This is what Paul says. The seed is designed to give itself up to die so that it can be transformed into something quite unlike its original state. And in doing so, we see the amazing creative power of God. Now all the skeptics leave this out whether we're talking about the, the, the plant life of this world or whether we're talking about the resurrection itself, all the skeptics leave out the concept of the amazing creative power of God. This is where the Christian worldview has, uh, shall we say, a power and a, an awareness of all that's going on in the universe that the skeptics simply do not have. They do not take into account the amazing creative power of God. So the principle of the seed involves continuity, That is to say, there is a direct connection between the seed and the plant that results. I don't know what you can see or how clearly you can see behind me, but hopefully if you're looking at it, uh, you're able to discern there's corn on the right, there's an oak tree in the middle, and there are sunflowers on my, I'm sorry, corn on the left, and and, yeah, and uh, sunflowers on the right. And if you're familiar with any of the seeds from these, you know there's no comparison between one corn seed and, and the corn stalk that's like twice as high as a man and Sunflowers the same way, and of course the mighty oak 
that grows from a little acorn. So the principle of the seed involves continuity. That is, there is a direct connection between the seed and the plant, but it also involves, and here's where, we, where Paul wants us to think regarding the resurrection, it also involves transformation. You see the word transformation? The plant looks nothing like the seed. When you put the seed in the ground, it is transformed into something amazing. Paul is saying that our resurrection bodies will relate to our present bodies in much the same way. The new living body will be so much more than a mere reconstruction of the old body. So know this, as one commentator puts it, for the believer, the fullness of life lies not on this side of the grave, but in the glorious age to come. Resurrection involves a new creation. God help us to lock this into our minds. Resurrection involves a new creation. As glorious as amazing, I should say, as an, as an acorn is, it's nothing compared to an oak tree. As amazing as our human bodies are, and every, every day almost brings new revelations of just how astoundingly designed our bodies are and how wonderfully they work when they're working as they're, as they're supposed to work. But what we have today is nothing compared to the new creation that we shall be in the future. So the first principle is the principle of the seed. The second one I've mentioned already, but I I think it's worth highlighting, the principle of God, the creator. Because again, all the skeptics leave this out, that God is the creator. He never ceases to be the creator. We think of creation as having stopped on the sixth day, but God did not stop being the creator. You understand that? God did not stop being the creator. At no point in our lives, then, can we afford to ignore the sovereign power of our creator God. Just as he bestows spiritual gifts upon whom he will, we read about that and looked at that back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, so God grants to each of us the resurrection body that he has determined best suits his eternal purposes. Paul takes pains. We're not going to reread it, but you've read it already and you can look at it again while I speak. Paul takes pains to demonstrate the endless variety of God's creativity. And in so doing, he makes the point that we must never limit God by our own powers of imagination. Now, here's the thing. When we think of the resurrection, we only want more of what we've already had. You know, oh, if I could only be 20 again. Some of us might settle for being 40 again. I don't know, but... but, uh, (laughs) If I could only be 20 again. But dear friends, God wants to give us things the human mind cannot begin to conceive in a new heaven and a new earth. So stop imagining that God will reconstitute our old bodies. The graves are not going to open. God's not going on the ultimate scavenger hunt to find all of your scattered molecules. Instead, You should start thinking about becoming a new creation in which your renewed body will match your renewed spirit. That renewed spirit that you received when you trusted in Jesus Christ, when you were born again, your body is someday going to match what God has already done in your heart. Now, I want to take a side trip just for a moment to talk to you about the limits of imagination because most of us have been led to believe that our imaginations are almost unlimited. And that's not even true. And I hope you'll see this in a moment. Let me talk to you briefly about a man named Richard Halliburton, who was a famous travel writer of the 1920s and the 1930s. And he he was an adventure traveler, uh, among other things. He uh, 
He swam right after the, right after the Panama Canal was first uh, established and started to be used. He decided he would swim the length of the canal. The first man to do it, as far as I know, the only man to do it. And he was charged for his passage through the canal as though he were a ship. They charged by weight. He paid 36 cents to pass through the Panama Canal. But the key to his success was his willingness to go beyond the beaten path, to do things nobody had even thought of doing. And one of the things he did was he hired a, a pilot named Moise Stevens. Now, Halliburton, I better get this right. Halliburton's the guy on the right. Moise Stevens is the guy on the left with the goggles and so, and so forth. I don't know who that is in the middle. But he hired this guy, this pilot, and they decided they would fly across the Sahara Desert in 1931. Nobody had ever done it before. He flew across. He visited Timbuktu and even more remote points along the way. But what I want to refer to, refer to you now is a story he tells about landing in an oasis that was miles and miles and miles from any other life. And the local sheikh took him to see the spring that was the source of life for the handful of people who lived at this tiny oasis. There was a steady flow that came out of the ground there and it watered a few date palms and there were some goats that drank there and the people, of course, lived off the water. But the land was so dry that the little stream that resulted from this spring didn't even get out of sight before it had already disappeared into the desert, into the desert sand. Nevertheless, the sheik was overflowing with pride at his good fortune. Now remember who Halliburton was. He had crossed oceans to get there. And this man said to him, did you ever see so much water? <laughs> yeah. Now, now try to get a man like that to imagine a rainforest. You would find that he could not do it. Not because he lacked imagination, but because he had nothing to compare it to. He had no pictures, he had no analogies, he had nothing to compare it to. In the same way then, we cannot imagine the glories that God has for us in the days to come. We need, God, we need to take it on faith that God is promising us that our future life will compare to our present life like an acorn compares to an oak, like a seed of corn compares to a stalk of corn, or whatever it may be. Here's what God says to us, Philippians chapter 3, verses 19 and following. Now, if you'll notice, the first phrase there is in square brackets because actually this, this sentence or this, this verse starts with a, with a pronoun, the, the word they, but I want you to know who they are. If you look in the previous verse, you'll see Paul is referring to enemies of the cross of Christ. And so he says, they, or enemies of the cross of Christ, are focused on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 21. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Let me just take you on a little journey just for a moment. You'll remember how in Acts chapter 1, the disciples, or Luke describes how the disciples observed Jesus as he rose from the ground there on the Mount of Olives, and as he went up into the sky, a cloud covered him, and they saw him no more. Now, we tend to think of a fluffy white cloud just floating along, and just like an airplane kind of disappears into the cloud, Jesus disappeared into the cloud. But if you go back to Daniel 7, which tells us about the other end of that journey, where Jesus comes flying into heaven on what the, is described as a cloud of glory. 
What we need to understand then is, remember how Jesus looked on the Mount of Transfiguration? Remember what Peter and the others described? That suddenly he was shining whiter than white, brighter than the sun, his glory just emanating from him. As he ascended up into the clouds or up into the sky, suddenly the glory cloud that naturally surrounded Jesus because he was a man of glory. He was the God of glory. Because of that, suddenly the glory cloud was lit and it was the glory that hid Jesus from their sight. That's the cloud they saw. Not just a fluffy white cloud. They saw the glory cloud. And what does Paul say? He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. Paul had seen him in his glory. Peter had seen him in his glory. All the Peter, James, and John, they had seen him in his glory. And this is what's being referred to. Then shall the righteous shine like the sun. That's what we read about in Daniel. Someday we will shine like him. We need to understand we're going to be transformed by the mighty creative work of God. C.S. Lewis got it, got it right. He tells us at one point in a sermon that he preached once aptly titled The Weight of Glory that if we could see one another today as we will appear in glory in heaven, if we could see, such, see that with our own eyes today, we'd be tempted to fall before such a person and worship them. We'd be wrong to do it because we should only ever worship God. But nevertheless, we'd be tempted to fall at one another's feet and worship each other if we could see the glory that will be ours in the the days to come. What an amazing thought. Now let's continue with Paul's explanation. I just want you to know, though, if you're having trouble imagining that, don't feel bad. Our imaginations are not just limited by our experience. They're also broken by our fallen nature. And so God help us to have cleansed imaginations. Actually, one of the things Lewis said about his conversion experience that began by reading a Christian author named George MacDonald. Some of you have read some of his books. And Lewis said that preeminently he baptized my imagination. And in Lewis's Anglican terminology, baptism is about cleansing. And so he was saying he cleansed my imagination. Well, enough of that. Let's continue with Paul's explanation here. And it's the third principle, the principle of the endless variety of God's creative powers. These are all related, but they still need to be uh, noted. This is verses 39 through 42. We see in nature, Paul points it out for us, uh, that is humans and animals and birds and fish and stars and stuff. We see all kinds of variety in nature. But now Paul speaks authoritatively. You have to understand that 1 Corinthians 15 is the word of God. Did Paul write it down? Absolutely. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God. That means he speaks authoritatively and he applies these same principles of endless variety, uh, the principles from nature to resurrection. The same creator God who inspired the glories of the natural world will do something similar to us, yet far greater in the resurrection. That's verses 42 through 44. Now, I just need you to note something here. The reference in verse 44 to natural bodies and spiritual bodies. This does not mean material and immaterial. Or, you know, solid and like a gas. Or ghosts or something of that sort. It does not mean the difference between material and immaterial. Both our natural body and our spiritual body will be solid. It will be material. But one body, that is the natural body, is oriented toward the earth, and the other, our spiritual bodies, will be oriented toward heaven and the things of heaven. 
Now, bodies that are able to die, that is our natural bodies, they're earthly, they're able to die, and bodies that are able to die will die. But the new bodies that are created for us by the endless creative power of God, these new bodies will not even be able to die. They are heavenly, they are spiritual, they are eternal, they will not be able to die. Bodies that are spiritually dead because of sin will be replaced by bodies that are fitted, filled with purity and with holiness. And we're going to enjoy a new, heavenly, holy Christ life that will infuse itself in our bodies as well as in our hearts, as well as in our spirits. Bodies that are of this earth will be replaced by the bodies that are from heaven. Look at 48 and 49. I said I wouldn't read everything, but I'm going to read this. Like the man made of dust, so are those who are made of dust. That is to say, we bear the image of Adam, our forefather. In Genesis chapter 5, it says specifically that Adam had a son in his likeness. That is to say, a sinner like himself. And all of us are been made, made in, the, in, the, in the likeness of Adam. But notice what it says in the second half of verse 48. Like the heavenly man, so are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the man made of dust, we, who's we? Those who are born again through faith in Jesus Christ, we will also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now, when we are born again, we have... The Holy Spirit. And that means, does it not? I trust you can speak to this from a personal experience. When we're born again, we have the Holy Spirit, and that means we experience the transforming work of the Spirit upon our hearts and our minds for the purpose of putting us progressively in sync with God. From glory to glory, we're being changed, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. We're being changed from glory to glory. Is that your experience? If you're born again, that must be your experience. If it is not at all your experience, I'm not talking, don't compare yourself to somebody else. But if you're born again, this will be your experience, that you're being changed, you're being transformed. The born again man cannot not be born again, cannot be not transforming into the image of Christ. You will be born, if you are born again, man or woman, you will be transformed. But no matter how much we may wish otherwise, we are still saddled with an unrenewed body. What Paul calls in Romans 7, the flesh, a body of death filled with sinful passions that continuously drags us away from Christ. The body of death that we live in and with. Just to give you one example, our bodies often desire sleep just as we understand it's time to pray. Oh, I'm just too tired. I don't, you know, I've got to sleep another 30 minutes and then rush off to work. I cannot get up to pray and spend time with God in my, in my Bible at night. Oh, it's been such a hard day. I have no energy for, for prayer, for Bible reading. I've just got to go to sleep. <laughs> That's the body. By the way, <laughs> there's an excellent scriptural example of that. Jesus has just been telling the disciples, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be buried. Pray for me, pray with me, stand with me in prayer. And as he wrestles with the situation in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he find every time he comes back to the disciples? Yeah. 
Our bodies often desire sleep, just as we realize we ought to pray. The body wants to indulge its appetites at the most inopportune moments. It wants too much, and it always wants it when it, what it wants at the wrong time, the wrong way, for wrong purposes. The body thinks only of itself. And so the true Christian, are you listening? The true Christian longs to receive a spiritual body. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 44. A spiritual body that will correspond to his spiritual heart. Imagine, imagine if you had a body that was all for aiding and supporting your highest aspirations as a follower of Jesus Christ. Suppose your body automatically fell on its knees the moment that you had the thought, I should pray. Boom, you're on the floor and your body is all in favor of praying, keeping you awake. In fact, waking up more awake than ever at the thought of communication with the living God. What if your body always seconded every motion toward obedience? What if it supported all your good intentions? As a Christian, of course. Well, that's exactly what's going to happen at the resurrection. That's why we need a new body. We don't need the old body revived. We need a new body. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. In other words, John is admitting we can't even imagine what we're going to be. We, we lack the power to imagine what God's going to do in our lives. All we can say for certain is this. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We long for that new body. We, we were so anxious for that new body that we don't hesitate to mortify, kill the desires of the old body. No, you can't have that. No, you're not going to do that. No, you're not going to get mad and say things that you're going to regret for the rest of your life, and so forth and so on. Because why? Because we're anxious to be like God. We're anxious to be with Jesus. We're looking forward to the day when this old body is gone. We don't want to cling to this old body. Let it die. Let it be buried. Let it return to the elements of the earth, the dust from which it came. Thank God it's gone so I can have this new creative body, creating this newly created body that is alive to righteousness and holiness that is alive in Christ. So dear friends, you need to understand something. All that I've been describing to you today, all that Paul Paul has been describing today is true science. It's science. You'll observe it someday. You're not there yet. I'm not. We're not there yet. But when we get there, this is what we will see. Now you say, oh, I'm so wise because I've seen somebody's drawing of, you know, that spiral staircase called DNA. I'm so wise. I've seen that. Nobody before my generation could ever see such a thing. <laughs> but you don't know what it means. And you certainly haven't seen it inside the body inside a cell. In fact, when the few photographs of it that, that we have been shown from electron microscopes and stuff, it looks, doesn't look anything like the, 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 dra- the, the drawings, the graphics, and so on. Nevertheless, it's an observation of something that is real that makes it science. And what Paul is describing here, though in simplistic terms, terms that anybody can understand anywhere in the world, this is true science. Why? Because it is an accurate description of what will be observed at the resurrection. This is the truth of what will happen to us at the end of the world. And if you have a Christian worldview, you must incorporate this view into your life. Would you bow your heads, please? Uh, Let's just spend a moment in meditation. And I want you to think about this question. 
What will the resurrection reveal about you? I've mentioned that from Daniel 12, we have learned that there'll come a day when the righteous will shine like the sun. We will shine like Jesus. There'll be a brilliance and a splendor enveloping us that if we don't have some specially recreated and, re- and, and, and new eyes, we won't be able to see one another because the bright light emanating from our bodies will blind us to one another. What will the resurrection reveal about you? Will you be revealed as only a person of this earth, a son or a daughter of Adam, but not a son or a daughter of Jesus Christ? See, that's the whole point of verses 48 and 49, and that is to to help us to know that through faith in Jesus Christ, we will bear the image of the heavenly man. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus? And hear me carefully. The kind of faith that involves repentance. And not just saying, oh, I'm sorry I told that one lie, or I'm sorry I hurt somebody, somebody's feelings. But rather, a repentance that is not only thoroughgoing at the beginning, but a lifetime of repenting of whatever the flesh gets involved with. Whatever, whatever sins we are exposed in our mind and our understanding, because we don't always know what sinners we are. But as... As we, and we don't even know what sin is. We think, well, I never killed anybody. I must not be much of a sinner. But the more you become attuned to God's Holy Spirit, the more you are aware of what it means to fall short of the glory of God. You think that's what Paul had in mind when he said all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? Of course it is. We'll, we'll, we'll never be able to do anything but come short of the glory of God unless we are in Christ. And unless we are clothed in new bodies by this supernatural creative work that Christ alone will do for us on the great day of the resurrection. And so I say to you, the message, the central message that each of us has to answer is, what, how have we responded to the clear statement, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? How have we responded? Have we believed? Have we, re- have we believed with a belief that incorporates repentance, that incorporates the incoming of the Holy Spirit, the transformation of life as we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead and as the hope arises or dawns in our hearts that someday he will raise us as well to join him in his heavenly home forever and ever. Now do you see why Nicodemus said you have to be born again? Now do you see why Jesus said unless you are born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God? We won't even have eyes with which to see unless we're born again. Oh, dear friends, believe on the Lord. If you haven't already, do it now. I'd love to talk with you after the service. We have elders present. Pastor Sig is present. Pastor Grant is back from his, uh, from his uh, sabbatical. He's present. There are any number of mature women as well as men who would love to talk to you about, about what it means to believe in Jesus and make sure that you know what is going on. But the first thing and the thing we need to know that is, is that in believing in Jesus... The Holy Spirit has entered, and you are transformed. So that, you know, Paul, remember, he says, here's the proof of the resurrection. I saw Jesus, and ever since, my life has been that of continuous sacrifice and service to Christ. And I wouldn't have it any other way. It's my favorite thing to do. God help us to be able to testify to such an experience in our own lives.